0: Why is hiring people who are customer-driven the key to a successful product team? David Cancel, CEO of Drift, tells all in this fireside chat. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Welcome to The Boss Podcast, episode 45. I'm Kirk Bailey, and on this week's episode, Boss's Mark Littlewood sits down with David Cancel to talk through how to structure product teams to increase employee retention and customer focus. He'll be answering questions such as what does a feedback loop directly between the engineers and customers look like? What key things or tools he feels helped him and his startups? What metrics should product teams and engineers be guided by? And what's Drift's gender split? You'll also find out why David is not the greatest stable boy. Happy listening.
1: I'm gonna start off by saying welcome back, David. You've spoken okay. a couple of times before. Yes. You've been um, on lots of other occasions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, give us the 30 second elevator
2: pitch on Drift. Uh, Drift basically helps B2B businesses connect with the customers that are interested in buying now that are on their website. Cool. And describe David Council. <laughs> 30 seconds? Yeah. yeah. Uh, originally software engineer, a long time ago. Uh, no one on my team believes that anymore, uh, that I ever coded. And then have started five companies, and Drift is the, the fifth.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Um, what was the first company?
2: Uh, the first company was called Compete. I was part of a uh, several other startups before that, but in 2000, I started a company here in Boston called Compete.com, and uh, and it was like if you know Alexa, which uh, it's sort of related to Alexa. So we would help people figure out, you know, uh, how they were doing relative to competitors using internet data. And uh, but the thing that we got wrong in 2000. Was timing matters, and in 2000, post bubble 2000, which is when we started the company, no one really cared about the internet, right, from a commercial <laughs> standpoint. And so I have a lot of good stories now that are funny, but they weren't funny at the time, uh, <laughs> including, you know, getting kicked out of many uh, company when we were trying to sell com- uh, compete services into it, software into it, and uh, you know, with quotes like, "No one will ever put a credit card online." No one will ever buy anything but books online. Well, you know, like I lost my bleeping 401k stock to Yahoo stock, uh, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. We're shutting down e-commerce, e-commerce is dead, Uh, department, like all of these things make for nice stories. Now, they didn't feel good for the first almost three years of Compete, and we sold Compete in 2007 to a company called WPP, London-based giant. Yeah, Yeah. Um, who are having a few issues. Yes, right now, for sure. uh,
1: That's another another story. a few things that I want to talk about um, with you today. Mm-hmm. I, I think sort of motivation. Um, what are your th- what are your sort of thoughts on products? Yep. What are your have you evolved as an entrepreneur over the over the years? And I think one of the things that we've heard today from uh, a lot of the speakers is some very kind of honest and 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 mm-hmm. open and sort of self reflective sure. thoughts. So we've been
2: kind of talking about this. Um,
1: You started off as a product guy?
2: Yeah, an engineer, uh, software engineer. And then, um, yes, it's it's a long story. So I started off as a software engineer. So I was in uh, in college. I studied computer science and accounting. And then I I, um, interned one summer for an accounting firm. And for about 30 seconds in, I was like, I never want to do this ever. (laughs) And I only took accounting because uh, my parents both emigrated to the US. And my mom's only dream for me, which I, I never fulfilled, was to be an accountant. And, uh, and to wear a suit and to go to the city wearing a suit and a briefcase. And I'm pretty sure my parents did not know what an accountant did, but it looked like a stable <laughs> job. And, uh, and but I was kind of obsessed with the early Internet and that was like in the early to mid 90s. And uh, I stopped going to all my classes in college and just hung out in the library because that was the only place where we had access to the Internet mm-hmm. and an early version of Mosaic and then later Netscape. And so I just stopped doing everything else because I, I basically found a, rat, uh, a rabbit hole that I've never come out of, right? It just kept going yeah. deeper and deeper and deeper. And then uh, I wanted to, my, both my parents worked for themselves. I wanted to start a business. I didn't know what that meant at all, right? And it's hard to explain this to people now who, uh, for us that grew up pre-commercial internet, like I had no idea how, what a business meant. Uh, entrepreneurism, I felt like nobody was like a four-letter word until like the mid-2000s, like the post-Zuckerberg era. Yeah. Like, entrepreneur meant like, you know, I don't know what it meant. It meant something bad, right? Like, you sold the infomercials or something. Yeah. At least what I uh, what I had heard, and, uh, and I didn't really know any of it. But I, I joined a startup, which I didn't know what a startup was either, in 1996, and uh, and then started to build something, and that got me really interested in what I do now, and so. Um, I kind of taught myself how to how to code, how to do everything, uh, and I liked that pirate aspect of the early internet. Mm. And then, um, you know, I think one of my people like asked me now, like, like um, about like how did I start? How do you start companies? And I said like I don't know. One of my advantages was that nobody ever expected anything of me, like. Uh, and so like my parents never went to college, like they didn't know anyone who started business like the way that we're, we're thinking about. Like uh, you know, my, my dad, I remember I came home one day, I think I was in high school, maybe starting college. And my dad had given, uh, had brought home an application, I lived in New York City, an application for the New York City uh, Department of Sanitation. Because he thought that would be a good job for me. And then my mom cried uh, for two days. <laughs> right. And said so he will never do that. And so like the reason I mention that is that because I didn't actually have any expectations of what was gonna happen. So in other words, I had nothing to lose and when I started a company, I had nothing to lose. What about if it didn't work? So then I could be an overpaid software engineer. Like so uh, yeah. I mean it didn't actually matter. And so I had very little risk compared to a lot of people that I talk to today where entrepreneurism is in vogue and want to start companies and they almost to me they seem too logical about it, and um, and they have a lot to yeah. risk, right? Yeah. They have a big, uh, you know, huge education behind them, huge set of expectations from their parents, huge set of expectations from society. They have a lot to lose, and I kind mm-hmm. of talk them out of doing this thing for crazy people, because I think like, <laughs> you know, like starting a business uh, is excusable if you do it one time, and because you didn't know, you were naive. The second time, it's kind of now it's questionable. By the third or fourth time that you've started business, like you probably, there's something something going on. Yeah. And by the fifth time, you're certifiable at this point, right, <laughs> like uh, starting businesses. Because uh, when you go through it, it is, I was just talking uh, earlier to some some people about it, and I, I think like we romanticize the pre-product market fit phase, mm-hmm. and I've talked a lot about it in that in the past, like the early days of uh, lean startups with Eric Reese and stuff, and I used to give talks, and I, I gave one here about that and uh, a long time ago. And people romanticize that part, but having gone through that with Drift in the uh, in the first two years, I never want to go back to that. Yeah, right. Because it was a constant, uh, cr- you know, const- constantly going in. Our- I had a co I have a co-founder, Elias. The two of us would constantly look at ourselves every day and say, like, why did we do this? Right, like because we left a company. Uh, where we were, we, we just went public as a company. The company is called HubSpot, and Darmesh mm-hmm. has spoken here many times. And we were working with Darmesh, and we left that to go start a company again. Yeah. And pre-product market fit, you're like, just uh, the only way I described it, it's like it's almost like walking through the desert every day with no uh, reference points. Yeah. And every day think to yourself, Did I, am I closer to getting out, or did I just go deeper in the desert? Because yeah. I have yet to have reference points, and then at the beginning of Product market, f- when you hit product market fit, at least you can see the giant Himalayans in front of you, yeah. uh, but at least you can see something. And for a long time, for that first year and a half, we could see nothing. We were just wandering around uh, aimlessly yeah. trying to figure stuff out. So, drift aside,
1: mm-hmm. which of your four startups are you most proud of?
2: Um, I don't know, probably one that's not even officially a startup, but I started a, 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 a a thing called Ghostery, uh, which is a browser plug-in, privacy browser plugin, in And I started that in 2008, I wanna say, something like that. And uh, I'm most proud of it because uh, I never thought it was a business. I, On purpose, I thought this cannot be commercialized. I only created it because I was interested in something geeky, which was trying to see what things were tracking you online, and, uh, and so I created it. And then a friend in San Francisco was equally geeky, and he asked me to post it so that he can install and the easiest way to put it in the Mozilla add-on store and so I, um, extension store so I put it in there. And then like in the first year there was like three million people using it. But it wow. was, it, it's, uh, and now there's, I don't know, four, Mozilla owns it now. It's like 40 million or something like that people use it. But like, and most people will like, remember that, right, yeah. that thing. And uh, and
1: was there a monetization?
2: No, I could have, like in retrospect, there were lots of ways to do it. Yeah. but. But uh, when I was doing it, I was always like, this is not a real business. Like uh, this, you know, so yeah. it was always like, and I finally, I sold it in, uh, before I started Performable, like 2010, and uh, because I never thought it was a business. And, uh, uh, but obviously it could have been a yeah. business. So I think one of the things that comes across from you, and I, I mean, I've known, I we've long known time. each other
1: for 10 years and mm-hmm. yeah, um, is that you were very, very, pro- I mean, you always, a, people think of you as a product. Mm-hmm. Definitely, um, and you were running. What was the thing HubSpot bought? A performable. Performable. A mm-hmm. um, that's kind of weird. Moving from running your thing, and that's yeah. something that people have been talking a little bit about again yeah. today. You know, you're mm-hmm. the, and you're then on somebody else's rocket ship.
2: Almost. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, How was that? Uh, it was fantastic. It was an awesome experience, but. Um, you know, in 2009 we started performing, 2000, like 18 months later, we were acquired by HubSpot, and that was, uh, it was great, you know, HubSpot was probably the size that Drift is now, like 200 and some odd people, uh, and uh, growing really quickly. I never thought I would sell the company, and I I had one investor, and they definitely didn't want to sell the company. Mm. Uh, But I thought, you know, I had known Darmesh from Who's the CTO and founder of, of HubSpot? From a little bit, just like virtually, because of compete and because yeah. uh, he he was interested in some data at compete. And then uh, I knew all of the pe- a lot of the people that were involved in the company. And we thought we had this crazy idea at the, that time that performable, like we were all product people, and HubSpot was super strong on marketing and sales and services and everything else. And so, like if we were together, maybe we could build like this. Uh, big company mm. which now obviously happened but like at the time seemed crazy and so that was really the driving force behind it and uh, it was an incredible experience like we went from like 250 200 people when I was there to like I don't know 1300 when I left something like that pretty quickly in like three and a half years yeah it was nuts but there was it's it's interesting because you left
1: pre-IPO yeah the day before
2: the, the uh, I left September Actually, today marks uh, today marks our anniversary of drift. Four years ago, we left, and uh, Happy and today, birthday. thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> yeah, today, uh, and uh, it was So yeah, four year anniversary. Uh, I left. We left September 30th, 2014, mm-hmm. and HubSpot went in public mm, some in the first two weeks of October yeah. of this month. Yeah. So you know. That yeah, felt like a. Was that a. If you stay there when it's public, you're going to
1: be tied in there for a little bit, or was was yes the the itchy right yes. So (laughs) you were then going to be tied in. So uh, I'm probably
2: as crazy as everyone else is here who has started businesses, and uh, and so you know it was a decision point for me of like I had an amazing, amazing friends and an amazing company, and everything could could not be better. But if I stayed, then I had to commit for another two years, let's say. And uh, I don't know, I think most entrepreneurs are commitment-phobic. Yes. <laughs> Very, <laughs> and so, uh, so I was nervous about that. And then I, I've really only started companies as a byproduct of, I have an obsessive personality and I, I channel that in a positive mm-hmm. area, which is like I'm obsessed with learning and getting better. Yeah. And the next set of things that I felt like I wanted to learn were back at this stage of the business. And so that was the driving thing. A little bit was this like commitment foe, but it was really like, I wanna learn again. And I was learning lots of things uh, there, but it was not the set of things that I wanted to learn next. And that was really it. And um, and then Elias, who's my co-founder at Drift, who's VP of engineering for me over at HubSpot, came along and we started this company. Interesting. The next day, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not a good plan, you You probably should take time off between these things, yeah. So so you knew what you were going to be doing? No, not at all. Zero. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's why we started at the end of 14, and we didn't launch our product commercially until April of 2016. Yeah. No, we didn't. I mean, we had, like, the story of Drift is, like, I had things, and this is kind of uh, my migration as a product uh, founder. In the early days, I used to think in the first several companies that everything was product right, and so like 99% of the stuff to focus on every day was about the product and engineering and building the thing and then a little bit about the go-to-market and selling mm-hmm. the thing and marketing the thing, but it was really around how do you build this thing? And then and, all the people will come. Yeah, and they will all come somehow, uh, and, uh, and but I do think in that era it was a little bit more true than it is today because um, in that era, like a lot of the things that these Fellow early other internet pirates were building at that point. Like, uh, was most people didn't know how to build them yet. Like, right? there wasn't a you know a book on it. There was no Stack Exchange. There was no Google. There was nowhere to find this thing. So the fact that you could build it, build it, was novel enough. And now fast forward to where we are now. When I started Drift, like everybody knows everything about building, scaling, doing all that stuff. It's all easy, uh, easily accessible. Uh, Hard to apply. And so very hard to apply. And so in the beginning, I used to care 99% of people, of a product and all that stuff. When I started Drift, by the time I started Drift, I had gone 180 and thought like, well, it's 99% people. That's the hard stuff. I wish it was just the other stuff because that's. That would be a lot easier. It's 99% people, and it's like 1% all that other stuff that I worried about the most. And those people are the people that you work with, but it's also the people that you serve as in terms of customers. If you happen to have investors, if you have your com- your greater community, those things are complicated, as we all know. Yeah. Those are very complicated. Dealing with people is very complicated. Yeah. Dealing with bits, which I did for a long time, that's complicated, but less so. You know, that was yeah. uh, fun times. And so by the time I started Drift, to fast forward. I was I was obsessed about some trends that were happening. One of them was messaging. Um, basically the fact that messaging from a technology standpoint I say that hasn't changed in my career. It's yeah. you know we could argue about that all day long pro- fellow product people. Not really. IRC is not that different from Slack today. And in some ways you can line them up, and they're almost like pixel for pixel the same. And messaging on your phone looks a lot like instant messaging did mm-hmm. 25 years ago. Almost the sa- exactly the same. Because it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. The f- the what has changed is that we've gone from like millions of people using it when I s- first started using it to like by the time Skype was massive, 150 million people using around the world to now uh, multi billions of people using it. That's the difference. And like identifying that behavior change and saying like, oh, we're at scale now. Mm. Maybe we can use messaging in the same way, a Slack or a WhatsApp or whoever to kind of resegment or rethink a problem space. Like let's do that and that's all we knew in terms of drift. And then we knew some other things like wow, like the consumerization of the enterprise that we've all talked about for like 12 years is finally true. Meaning like we all actually all buy stuff within our companies. Yeah. It's not just one person or two or three. That's huge because all of a sudden you drag along the way that you, your consumer preferences to work. Mm. Uh, and so we've all lived through that. And then like this huge commoditization of, of software and hardware, frankly, yeah. where um, everything that we can create can be replicated like in a nanosecond. Yeah. And that means that all of a sudden the, we think that the shift is happening where the power is going to all of us, the consumers and the buyers and less so to the companies obviously there's still monopolies all over the place but like it's shifting pretty fast when all of a sudden you're in a category where there might be 10 a 100 1000 competitors in where you know years ago you might have had three competitors in that market yeah
1: it's interesting and
2: i suppose one of the things i've noticed over the years with
1: well um, certainly since drift you've mm-hmm. been much more vocal about growth Mm-hmm. and scale mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, I mean you used to tweet obsessively about product yeah yeah <laughs> and you know you got a lot more mm-hmm. obsess or not obsessive but you mm-hmm. know a lot lot more of your tweeting is about growth and you know your user mm-hmm. event mm-hmm. um which you've just done too often yeah yeah you, September. two in the same month never really again bad idea yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah never again yeah um it's called hypergrowth yeah yeah um, and everything is about that Growth. That thing. Yeah. How, how did you get your head around that? Was that a kind of a conscious thing, or is that something that's evolved? It's yeah, a, it's, it's a different, different
2: from from obsessing around product. I still obsess around product, and that's where I'm most mm. comfortable. Product design and engineering. Um, in terms of growth, I think what has fueled a lot of it has to do with these kind of these the shift that I think specifically in SaaS that I live. So in 2000, when I started to compete, that was actually a SaaS product. Mm-hmm. We never ended up selling it as SaaS. SaaS as a category or a thing, a concept didn't exist. I think yeah. we called it like we were going to sell software via e commerce, you know, and you could subscribe. And all. we couldn't even describe what it was. Uh, we had to go back and disguise what it was because no one would buy, it. we couldn't find people to buy or care about our software at that point. But um, so I've been in SaaS. This whole time, right? And uh, since 2000. What I think, I think SaaS has been through these three phases as I think about it, which is this first phase when I started Compete, which was like, and you know, Salesforce and all these companies had started at that point, and like you could develop a moat around technology. The fact that you could take something that used to be on prem uh, or some kind of service, and then put it in the cloud, yeah. make it accessible to people. Like there was technology moats that we were building at that point around that all those companies, and you'd have single-digit number of competitors, and a lot of them would be like on-prem software versus what you were offering, and um, and so that world we could hide behind patents and secrets and you know like technology and all that kind of stuff. Then I, we went into the second phase of SaaS, which you know when we were at, with Performable and HubSpot and what have you, and you saw the rise of all these SaaS companies. I think that second phase was more like the Model T phase. Basically, uh, your defensibility, most of those companies were building was around like the business process, right? Yeah. Kind of technology was equalized a little bit and all of a sudden it was like, what's your go to market? What's your LTV to CAC? what's your ACV, do you use field sales, online sales, a mixture of both, you know, do you have, so you have field inside, do you have BDRs, ADRs, uh, CSMs, blah blah, 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 all these acronyms that we all know, like all of these things and how do you line them up and are you vertical SAS or horizontal SAS, are you like, and we chopped up the market that way and, uh, and many companies went to market that way. I think we're, to, back to answer your question, I think we're in this third phase and, uh, and I think this third phase you have infinite number of competitors mm-hmm. in your segment. And um, and you can't hide behind just the business process, nor the technology. So I think in this phase, you have to build a brand. And so I started to, uh, I'm not a marketer. I started to obsess around <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I just, I misheard yeah, you. Yeah, I've become
2: that. one, but I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not naturally one, but I've been, uh, I started studying a lot of it going back in time and studying a lot of stuff and saying like, how did those companies build a brand? Like what does a brand mean? I don't know, I came from being an engineer and a product guy. And so I started to study how did people make decisions when they buy? Yeah. What is the psychology behind all this stuff? And just really got deep into that stuff and thought like, okay, if we're gonna build a compa- the kind of company that we're trying to build, like we're gonna to have to make it accessible to a global you know, set of customers, and we have to create this brand and all this stuff, and so that is where the kind of idea of growth came yeah. around because all of a sudden we wanted to play on a global stage versus in this small segment yeah. or region. It's interesting. And what, so one of the things I was thinking about when we we're
1: when we were kind mm-hmm. of um, talking about this was working at somewhere like HubSpot. Mm-hmm. It's become a marquee mm-hmm. company, and I think you know you are you're talking about being mm-hmm. in the, the next. Boston pillar company, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a, an interesting thing. Is that Very something that you would have seen yourself doing no. five
2: years before HubSpot? No. Or is this? No, not at all. Never. Is that Never. something
1: that's motivating
2: you to? Uh, I feel like you know, I'm. Uh, I don't know. Incrementalist maybe is the wrong word, but like that I've, I'm obsessed with learning. I keep learning. Part of learning is having access to different role models, mm-hmm. different mentors, and then being able to look behind the curtain and say, oh, that's how they do it, right? And yeah. so at least for my version of learning. And so I think part of the way uh, HubSpot has shaped this is like I got to see like, oh, I never had seen, like what does it take to go from like 200 people to this public company? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can do it, but like what are the mechanics? How does it work? How do you like decompose yeah. this thing? And so I saw that and then I thought wrongly or rightly, like, oh, maybe we can do that right, in yeah. the next company, right? And so I've been kind of like learning kind of these step functions mm-hmm. along the way of like different scale and operating at different scale. And so uh, it's I definitely would never have thought about it before HubSpot. And also beyond HubSpot, I thought, hey, this is my, I started four companies already. Like, like why am I gonna get up? What's gonna motivate me? Every day, like, <laughs> do I want to go just start, uh, you know, another company yeah. and then sell another company eventually? Like, I don't know. That didn't feel like it would motivate me. But like, maybe if we could serve our customers and eventually yeah. build this type of company, like, maybe that would be motivating. Mm-hmm. So all of these things. I think it's a complicated answer, but I learn by observing how people have yeah. been able to do things.
1: And do they? Does the sort of emergence of I mean, people talk about unicorns, which I think are nonsense. I think rhinoceroses are yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. ugly, ugly creatures. Uniforms, yeah.
1: uni- unicorns, and they yeah. kind of actually exist, and they're quite rare.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, <laughs> but you have things like HubSpot, which is I don't know, it's probably three, four, five billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. Is that the sort of thing that makes you go,
2: actually, fifty
1: fifty million isn't
2: enough? Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah. uh, no, I don't actually. No, not for me because. Part of, like, I don't actually. It's not necessarily
1: that's, that's the money in your pocket. It's sort of, does that change the, the measure of ambition?
2: Uh, a little bit. I'd say, you know, part of my motivation for myself, I won't speak for my founder, but uh, my co-founder, but similar, is like, I thought, look, if we're gonna start, we've been super fortunate, if we're gonna start uh, Drift, if we ever have or able to build this kind of company, mm-hmm. like, my goal from the very beginning is like, Uh, 100% of my equity in Drift, I will give away, like 100%. I'm not keeping a dollar of it. So like a dollar of it is not motivating me, right? Right. So it's not the 1% pledge with me, it's a 100% pledge. So that motivates me. Like, can we create enough value and have that? So how, let's talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. You're giving your... My equity. Where's the cue? Where's the line? (laughs) Yeah, where's the line? (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: what's the, what's the, is that something that you've articulated, is, is that something?
2: Uh, yeah, internally, but right. you know, I don't talk about it yeah. uh, uh, publicly often except for here, uh, but like. So that's yeah. a special place. Yeah, special place, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, internally, sometimes I talk about it and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, there's certain, obviously we do that now, but like, you know, that's, gets me up in the, yeah. in the, in the morning and then, uh, and there's specific causes that get me up and then, my co-founder is from Nicaragua, he immigrated here and he wants to build schools in Nicaragua and that's his cause. And wow. so we don't trumpet that around, but yep. that's what gets us up. So are there particular things that you would like to see happen with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for me, learning is a big part of it. So helping you know, um, in different formats, which we try to now, like um, kids under a certain age, because mm. I think that's when we really have a chance and like some of the bigger issues that we try to deal with now, I kind of think like the unfortunate answer to a lot of them is like, they're like multi-generational answers, right? Yeah. And they would everyone wants a, like short cut to it and it's gonna take a long time. And so I'd like to support that. And you know, my mom basically raised me alone and so I'd like to support single moms, right? And uh, mm. those are the two things that I'm, I'm focused on. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So how does that then tally
1: with um, and I think it's something we can we can talk about, or should talk about. Um, when you have a growth mindset, mm-hmm. and when you have a team that is rapidly expanding, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of venture capital kind of mm-hmm. coming in to mm-hmm. fuel that growth. Um, that requires quite a commitment, not just from you, but oh yeah, also from the employees and the entire mm-hmm. team. And mm-hmm. I know uh, people that have gone to Drift and absolutely love it, mm-hmm. suck it, but they're they're very they're very committed, mm-hmm. um, and it feels like it's one of those things where everyone is is on that mission.
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know we've been super deliberate on that side of like talking about um, one you know core to all of us there, even at this uh, early, in this early size, is like that we're all obsessed with learning, right? So one of my one of my issues is that um, that I only really like to be around. Pe- interesting people that want to learn things and then I'm not very good at being around people who are not like that <laughs> which is <laughs> unfortunate so it makes uh, makes yeah. it's good for this kind of environment like with yeah. everyone in this crowd and then yeah. starting companies that's like an interesting trait to have it's not a good trait to have in the rest of your life because you don't encounter a lot of people yeah. like that and so um, so we wanted to design I want to design a company where like everyone, was had this kind of mindset, mm-hmm. they wanted to learn. Yeah. And in order to learn, one of the things that we talk about the most is that the hardest thing that will keep you from learning is uh, your own internal battle, which we all have every day, between your own ego and balancing that yeah. with a level of humility. Yeah. And that is a painful thing, that's an easy thing to talk about, and it's a hard thing to deal with every day, and so those are the two things that that we really talk about with everyone on the team. And so mm-hmm. the team is very, it's very diverse, very different. But I think we're the same in these two qualities of having this learning obsession or mindset and then having this second thing of like always trying to figure out like that, this level of humility and that we are here to serve mm-hmm. customers. And that we are not a software company and we're not a whatever company. Like We are a customer service company and we're only here yeah. to serve customers. And the minute that we stop doing that, we will not have a business anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, a super easy thing to talk about, which you can talk about that and put yeah. stickers on the wall and do all that stuff. It's hard to live it every day yeah. and uh, live values. And I think, you know, I talk about values, I don't know, for whatever reason, like I talk about values a lot, and, like, uh, and I think like, I don't know, my view on that kind of stuff is like, I think the culture is like the sum of the people at any given time in your company. And then the, the things that you want to preserve and that you are willing to promote Mm-hmm. But that you're also willing to part ways with people if they violate those, and everyone will promote and everyone will talk about the values, but almost no one will ever make the hard calls because mm-hmm. that's a talented engineer, that's a great salesperson, that's a great marketer, whatever. We'll look mm-hmm. the other way. No one will ever do that, yeah. and that you have to live every single day, and that is the va- that yeah. that becomes your values. The yeah. minute that you turn away and don't look at that, then that was the yeah. value of the company.
1: And I think I mean it's always been a you know, very. I think clear to people that know you that mm-hmm. you you have a set of values that you hold, mm-hmm. um, hold hold close. Um, close. Let's talk about mm-hmm. um, hypergrowth East yep. and what happened there, because mm-hmm. I, I mean if I'm looking at that from the out, outside and and, um, and I'll ask you to kind of yeah elaborate say what say mm-hmm. say your, you know what your sense of what was going on mm-hmm. was is, is you kind of have a culture that is growing and you have people kind of coming in mm-hmm. there. It's harder and harder to control that. Very hard. And then suddenly something gets out of control. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just give us a little background on?
2: Sure. So we had this, uh, or we have a conference called Hypergrowth. This was the second year that we've uh, that we've held the conference. Uh, Last year we held it in Boston. This year we held Hypergrowth East in Boston last month, officially a month ago. And then we held another conference called Hypergrowth West, creatively in San Francisco. And uh, at Hypergrowth East, we. It was big we had 4,500 people register and like 3,000 people show up and it was kind of in this outdoor thing. We had a bunch of speakers uh, come and kind of like my thing with the idea for Hypergrowth was like that I never wanted it to be a drift conference or to mm-hmm. talk about marketing and sales or the kind of stuff that we do because I just think that's yeah. that's boring. And uh, even to me, haven't done it a long <laughs> time. Uh, I wanted it to be more Like this, like this kind Mm. of conference, and uh, but to have
1: we're white label for you.
2: Yeah, yeah, white label. Okay, awesome. (laughs) Uh, I wanted it to be um, speakers from all sorts of Mm. areas because I think like when we talk about growth, we think like we don't separate or I don't separate professional growth from uh, personal growth, Mm. and you know, personal growth being emotional growth and physical growth, and you know and uh, growing in all these different dimensions. And I think you need to grow in all these dimensions to ultimately grow, yeah. right? And so we had speakers from military, uh, mm-hmm. Jocka Wilnick, who wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. We had uh, speakers from who had been at high growth companies like Molly Graham from Facebook and Quip and et cetera. And, uh, and we had speakers that came out of music and uh, fitness and all of these speakers. Uh, we had, and then we had one person that uh, came out of marketing world, Ryan Dice, and we had one person that came out of the sales world, uh, and his name is Grant Cardone, and uh, and we had Grant come up. He wrote a book called Ten uh, X Growth Formula, and uh, and and I had you read that book. Formula for this stuff? It's not called a formula. I made that one, up. It's it? called Ten X right. Growth okay. Something. Go it's on. not formula. Yeah, yeah. Guaranteed uh, steps to no, no, no. success. Yeah. Right. It was uh, it's growth mindset or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and we had him come up. He's from Florida, Miami or something. And uh, we had them come up. The gr- we had uh, 12 amazing speakers and one that uh, that was very bad, and that was Grant Cardone. And uh, I'd say the first third of his talk was okay. And then uh, the last two thirds were all over the map, including one point where his wife, Elena, was in the, in the audience and his whole entourage flew up and uh, where he made some, uh, disparaging remarks about his wife and mm-hmm. uh, during the conference. And so, and most of that, logistically, like um, most of that I started to hear from Twitter, basically, yeah. uh, from the tweet stream. And, uh, and so, I came out, I later came out on stage at Hypergrowth and, uh, and apologized to everyone, took ownership for failing not to, mm-hmm. for failing to have that speaker there. So, okay. it was uh, painful. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Is it, looking at the kind of tweet stream for the event, there was actually a lot of people going, wow, this guy's cool. Yes, there were. Um, So it's really sort of interesting how you, how you kind of manage and arbitrate between people who are saying interesting things, Mm -hmm. who may be saying unacceptable things as Mm -hmm. well. Um, If a lot of your crowd, Mm-hmm. Is kind of egging them on. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you kind of change that in terms mm-hmm. of culture? Is that you know does that sort of how 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 do you sort of manage that yeah. that kind of cultural thing? And what, what sort of how would you do things differently next time?
2: I think the, you, I think you know most of the stuff that I saw, uh, which you probably saw, we're talking about the we're referencing the first third or so mm. of his talk, which was on. Uh, selling and right. marketing okay. more marketing, but selling and marketing. and, uh, and so I think those, that's what the references were. Mm-hmm. Then the talk went off the rails. South. Yeah, South. And then there's the next sequence uh, of tweets. Yeah. So most of this we were s- all of us backstage were seeing this kind of through tw- through yeah. tweets. and so we saw the same ones which you saw which were a bunch of positive ones. those were at the beginning and then the timeline was then they, then we started to see the tweets about like where this uh-huh. thing was going. And so from a, like, how do you change it standpoint? I mean, what we did at Drift was uh, we created more, we put more eyes on vetting the speakers, including Mm -hmm. the ones that we had at at San Francisco, even though we had already booked them. And so, like, we have, I think we have, like, nine people now. I'm one of them who are going through all the speakers and interviewing them Mm -hmm. before they come on board. There's some stuff that I was talking to another friend who runs a very, very large conference, much larger than... Than the one we threw, and um, they have had experience with, with all sorts of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of vetting that you can do before, but as you know, like when someone goes on, like you know, yeah. unless you have a giant hook, I know, you know, I'm quite a big guy. Yeah, you're a big guy. You can <laughs> tackle them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's
1: a it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, look, it's we've got a few minutes. A party or drinks and networking starts at um, sort of six thirty. So. Um, I can't access my computer. So I don't don't know if anyone's asking questions on Twitter. So do you want to put your... Oh, we've got mics. So let's start here with Glenn.
2: Thanks. Hi, David. Um, Hey. I'm curious, what's been your philosophy around fundraising, especially in the early stages of a company? Yeah. It's an interesting question. I think, you know, I've done, I've bootstrapped companies and and I've obviously taken a lot of money. At Drift, we've raised 107 million, which is an insane amount. Um, Nutty. Uh, I think, you know, I think it depends on your outcome. I, I kind of view it as like, hey, you have to have your eyes wide open going into it. I think most of the issues that I've talked to entrepreneurs and business owners about are always. Happen around this, like they're not super clear on what they're getting themselves into. They're not walking with their eyes wide open, and they're like, "I want to run this like when I still owned it, but I want to like raise some capital from these yeah. professional uh, people over here, and I just want to keep it this way." And I'm like, "These things are in conflict. It's never going to work that way, even if it is temporarily, because they have goals. It doesn't mean that they're bad or not. It's just black and white what they want, and uh, and so." I've run into that issue a lot, and I think you just have to know what you want. Like, and um, for me, I knew that we were trying to build a certain type of company, I knew that what that would take, and we like reversed back like and averaged out like how much money would it take and all of these kind of questions, and that's what led to our decision. But I think you need to be super deliberate because I think it becomes seductive when you're bootstrapping a company to think like, I can just take the pressure off and I can just yeah. raise some money, and uh, it is temporarily. And then, and then it's not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I would just be clear. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, Dupsey, hello.
0: Um, great talk. Um, uh, you've had multiple um, entrepreneurial successes, mm. which is like the holy grail of holy grail. Um, are there any particular things that you think, partic- you know, some things that really helped you get there? Was it around the environment? Your, You know, did you have some weird kind of cult, <laughs> that no. you that you joined could no, you, not you at share, all. share a little bit about who you surrounded yourself with and what key things or, uh, or tools you feel helped you you know get to where you are
2: thanks i think uh, for me when i look back at it i think it's um, it's exactly what you said who i surrounded myself <laughs> with but i wasn't deliberate about that in the past like i can now look back and be like oh i kind of i kind of think about myself as like the forrest gump of this, like I kind of stumbled my way and yeah. I didn't really know what I was. Now I look back, I'm like, that was weird. I was around some amazing people that showed me this next set of things to learn. And then I stumbled upon another one, another one. And without having this deliberate kind of mindset, I had my first, uh, I stumbled upon my first mentor in high school and college. I worked at a warehouse, I unloaded trucks and uh, at this warehouse. Happened that the owner of that warehouse, which I didn't know at the time, his name is Sam Lee. Uh, Owned this incredible business in New York, and uh, Sam was a super, he became my first mentor, right? And uh, indirectly, and he kind of, like a good mentor, uh, made me work super hard. Uh, He had emigrated here from Taiwan. I was the only person in the whole, all of his companies that was not uh, Chinese, I was the only only one. And I only got that job uh, because my best friend at the time, Knew his family. He was Chinese, and he vouched for me, and so I got this job. And the, the biggest compliment that Sam ever gave me, and why he mentored me over time, over years, was that he said, "You work like a Chinese person." Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, all right." I didn't know how much that actually meant when he said that yeah. to me, but that was the only compliment. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I stumbled upon him, and Sam was, you know, not that money means anything, but he was like okay. a first like really successful person that I knew but he was super humble. He drove an old car. You could never tell that he actually owned these businesses. It took a long time before he told me like I really found <laughs> out. And like every trapping like you would think of like someone like that, he did not have. He was the most humble person ever and he became my first mentor. And then I stumbled upon another men- another person named Sam who's my next mentor. So I have like three mentors named Sam. Uh, Sam Lee, I have a virtual <laughs> mentor Sam Walton, whatever you think about uh, Walmart, which I don't love but like if you read that book that book has impacted me a lot. It has a lot around servant leadership about focus on the customer and what have you and then Sam Zales is my third Sam. but I stumbled upon these and then I stumbled upon many more including uh, many great people at, at HubSpot, which we talked about before and all of those kind of like opened my eyes to like what is possible and so now I try to help I help. I try to help everyone on our team make sure that they have, they're surrounded with, that they have mentors and I help them find them, that they have role models, people, and that they're putting themselves in the right peer groups like this. Yeah. And so we spend a lot of our time, I spend a lot of my time when i uh, doing these one-on-ones, making sure that they have those because those have been the most uh, impactful mm-hmm. thing for me personally, and uh, I wanna make sure everyone has access to that. Interesting, thank you. I, All I can see is, Lights. One I, I've co- got a
1: microphone, so. Oh. oh. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to oh. go for it. Um, hi. So, you talk a lot about, um, you're, you mentioned earlier, not separating professional from personal growth. Mm-hmm. And um, as long as we're on the topic of diversity and inclusion, especially given what happened with Grant Cardone, something I'm interested to, to hear more about from you is when you're growing a company at scale. How are you ensuring that your own personal values um, related to diversity and inclusion are um, kind of trickling down to the rest of the team at Drift? And what are some steps that other uh, CEOs and founders can can take?
2: Yeah, that's a, we'll probably be here like all night. This is a good question to talk about. I like this question. Um, It's a surreal question, I will say. So, like, we wanna be like uh, raw at BOS. It's hmm. a real question because I think like um, I, I kind of grew up uh, in these environments where I was I'm Hispanic. Most people don't know that, but like where I was the only brown person, right? And so I've dealt with like everyone has dealt with things, you know, racism and lots of issues in my life. And so like, but now I'm on the other side, and it's like surreal to like it's almost like I don't know like a movie almost. Like now well, I'm on the not
1: o- so much the underdog. Anymore, yes, isn't
2: I'm not that? the underdog anymore. I'm on the other side, and then. Then, so people then ask me about, do I think about diversity? And I'm like, mm-hmm. kind of like thought about diversity my like entire life. How many of
1: life? your, yeah. what drifts? Yeah. Gender split, for example.
2: oh uh, Pretty close to, it depends on the role, right, obviously. And so it's easy a uh, total company size Why where it's obviously? pretty. Because, uh, because STEM is very different, right? right. STEM is very different, so, in which we could talk about. From a company standpoint, we're pretty close to 50-50. Uh, from a uh, uh, STEM standpoint and product standpoint, we're like probably like 30 some odd percent, 35%, something like that, mm-hmm. which is pretty high. But like, um, but obviously not 50-50. I think STEM, the reason I say obviously, STEM is an important one because that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is like some, a lot of these answers are multi-generational answers. Mm-hmm. And like to, to fix the problem in STEM specifically, Coming as an engineer, like that's a multi generational problem because from a math standpoint, the math does not make sense, right? Like, if you look at, I think, um, I forgot what the last numbers were from Google and Facebook. I spent a lot of time on this. Like, um, you know, if you have, you know, total STEM graduates from a gender standpoint being, you know, I forgot what the number is, let's say Mm it's 20%, right? It's sub 20%, but let's say it's 20% the idea that in the next couple of years we're all going to be at 50% is yeah. obviously mathematically impossible we have to change some systematic things mm. and we can get closer to whatever the the that number is but it's hard because it means mm. like and i have these uh conversations with people both in the building outside the building all the time of like you know i might be talking to a founder i want to get to 50% and it's like and then i want to feel like and, I, and my view is like well one that's amazing two like Mathematically, how would you do that? And <laughs> and would you feel as good knowing that you got to 50%, but it means the two companies next door, do you have to be at 10% in order for yeah. you mathematically to be at, the, uh, if you wanna short, solve it in the short term? Yeah. Those are very real things that nobody yeah. wants to talk about, that they wanna yeah. talk about like a hashtag, a thing, or that, or whatever. Or pro- and yeah. it's like, that's a real problem. So how do we, what are we doing? And that's where I wanna, what I'm doing personally is like, how do we invest in making starting all the way back here? Because all the way back here is what it's actually going to take, right? And so, um, it's just a it's a tough tough thing in terms of like, how do we do this at Drift? Uh, talk we talk a lot about it. We talk about it. I talk. We talk a lot about it with our recruiting team and uh, all of our people who everyone on the team basically recruits, and say like, it's not enough to think about it from a high level or from an initiative standpoint. The real Way that you are going to do this is every day, and that mm-hmm. means like maybe you know this flow that you have or this way of recruiting for you is really easy, mm-hmm. and this other way that's going to open up the mm-hmm. the pool is really really hard. And maybe we're going to say no to these really really easy ones, and you're going to do the hard work, and that's going to be three times the work mm-hmm. for you. That's how you're going to do it, like yeah. not by just you know being pumped up about like yeah. some. High-level yeah. program, and so the answers I always think the answers to everything are like hard, right, and take yeah. a lot of hard work, and yeah. uh, and so that's how we deal with it every single day, and it's it's uh, like growth, it's hard, it's, mm. th- it's not comfortable to do it every day. So.
1: Uh, okay, thank you. Um,
2: we got
1: I... Sorry, I uh, I'm actually uh, yeah. sitting here. I just I, can't I see it. a thing. Can't
2: see anything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Um, I've heard you talk a lot about process mm-hmm. so far, uh, mm-hmm. like thinking about product, thinking about marketing, thinking about what you're doing every day. But um, you know, I- this morning we heard a couple of talks where, where the th- sort of the sub-theme running through both was the notion mm-hmm. of creation not as an act but as, mm-hmm. as a product, right? Yep. As, as, as a business, something that then separates from the founder.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You've been through this a bunch of times and sometimes you described it, sort of described it as stumbling into it, at least in the past. Have you given thought? Do you have a plan for what your last day at Drift is, and mm-hmm. what do you want it to be? Yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, you know, it's funny. My uh, uh, my partner, my wife, the, you know, for for years was always the one that was like, "Yeah, you should start another company." When I was like, "Really? Really? Should I start another company?" And then uh, during Drift, like in the first like two years, you know, we had a conversation. She was like, "This is the last company." I was like what I was like what? I was like what? what does that mean? Like what do you mean? And it's like, this is the last company. So like make it count. Like this is it. And I'm like, what, is, what does that mean? And my wife and I met a uh, long, long time ago, and she's an entrepreneur as well. She sold her company a long time ago to a company called Oxygen Media in New York and she wrote a book and she did this and she's a professor and done all this amazing stuff. Uh, she's the super powered one for sure. And she she's like, No, I'm gonna go start, now I'm gonna be entrepreneur and you're, you'll, uh, we're gonna switch places. So, Drift is my last company for sure, um, <laughs> definitely. There's no doubt about that, 100%, 100%, guaranteed. Have a word with the boss. Yeah, Brian. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what's good. Uh, yeah, but I really haven't set a date yet for, that's a great question, but I haven't set a date yet for when my last day will be at Drift. Uh, I'm still learning that process of, which I think all of us are, like how do you let go? We, I created this idea uh, when we started the company about three year sabbaticals. So every three years you'll get one month off, which I thought was a cool idea. I've never taken one month off in my entire life, right? Uh, working life since 13. And then this year I did take a month off uh, because I was a member of the team who was there at the beginning said, Hey, remember that thing about three year sabbaticals? It's like three years now. And I was like, What? What are you talking about? I don't remember that. Yeah, and then, uh, then I was at home and my wife and I were talking and she said, "Oh, you have, you're gonna have to take it. And I yeah. said, why? Because no, nobody's gonna take it. Yeah. And I said, even up until the day before I was supposed to leave, I was like, I don't know if I can do it, cuz I've never done it, right? Uh, I've never taken more than a week off uh, I, that I can remember. And then, um, but that month off. Was amazing. I'm the biggest supporter of sabbaticals, having gone through it, uh, because it let me see things in the business that I couldn't see because I was too close. Yeah. And uh, the reason that I mentioned that is that, in a weird way, that's not me leaving or stepping down, but it gave me a way to like understand like that this thing can go on and like that this distance can be okay. Like yeah. me personally. Although right? maybe that's actually less
1: about you having time off. Yeah, oh, totally. That was about you having. Space when you weren't doing your day-to-day, you, you
2: were still thinking about business, right? Uh, I stopped. If you believe, it took me. <laughs> uh, I can't, it's unbelievable. If you would have told me, it took me two weeks into it, uh, two and a half Cold weeks. Cold Turkey. Yeah, I. I was reading. Obviously, I read all the time. Uh, my daughter is super, uh, super equestrian, like super into horseback riding, and so I took her to an event that she was doing in Vermont in a place where there was no cell phone coverage. So in some ways, I had no choice. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I just was a stable hand for two weeks, and that forced oh, me no. to just be present, yeah. right? Uh, and, and, I was, and I was meditating as well, which I do, and uh, I was okay with it. And so it taught me a little bit of what you're asking about, like that it, was, it uh. could be okay, when before it was always wrapped up, probably like all of you, in my identity, yeah. and that I have, could have an identity outside of that. And uh, my biggest fear, though, by the end of the sabbatical is like maybe I'm never going back. Maybe <laughs> that's it. Maybe I'm on sabbatical forever. Yeah. Right? And Did it's you marry a good stable boy? It's a uh, very bad, very bad, <laughs> <laughs> very bad stable boy. Uh, a good, you know, I was good at clapping, you know, good at clapping, good supporting, good at getting water and cleaning stuff. Yeah. Cool. So, so maybe I was a good stable hand.
0: If you want to find out
2: more about Business of Software, head over to our website
0: at businessofsoftware.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Boss Conference. Check us out on LinkedIn and don't forget to sign up for the Boss Newsletter where we share news, stories, latest talks, upcoming events and more. You can sign up for free at businessofsoftware.org update. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help us reach more listeners, why not leave us a five-star review? The best place to do so is Apple Podcasts, and every review tells the smart people over at Apple to bump us up the ratings chart and get us seen by more people. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.